welcome to this week's episode of the Horrible Things Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Sexton, and today we are here to talk about all things horrible, whether it be a murder, whether it be a building collapsing, or just generally things that make you cringe. Uh, Like I said, my name is Emma, and today I'm joined by... Michaela Ruiz. I'm very excited because you've never been on the show before. No, I have not. This is a first-timer, first-time guest, and we haven't had one of those in a while because of quarantine but then Michaela reached out to me and she was like I've been listening to the podcast and now I'm like low-key obsessed with true crime and I was just thinking perfect another person I can convince to come on the show and let me um scare them half to death for a while so that's exactly what happened yeah um so I'm gonna ask you the question that we ask all first-time guests on the show which is what's your level of knowledge about true crime if you don't know anything then why and if you do know a lot then also like how did you get into it and what are your favorite cases to look at and things like that so I think I got into it a few years ago I was I just remember being a little kid and randomly watching documentaries of like people killing people or how they did it or like killed case files and stuff like that on tv that I didn't even put on myself it was just on I don't know who put it on but it was just there so (laughs) that's kind of how I got into it and then once you told me about your podcast, so I listened to it, and that really opened my eyes to like seeing what actually was going on out there. So, so what's your favorite cases to look at? Would you say like what what are you most interested in? I really enjoy cold case files, but I hate them at the same time. Isn't that the truth? Yeah, they are both miserable and exciting at the yes. same time. Um, what? Like, which ones in particular, if you have any in particular? The one that really took me back was the uh, Monster Florence. Mm, that yeah, that's a good one. crazy. But yeah, that's my most interesting one I think I'd have, like, been into, I guess. Yeah, for sure. What was I saying? Oh, yeah, Cold Case Files. What a, so, Monster Florence, obviously, Cold Case, horrifying. What was, like, the first... I mean, I guess everyone I feel like that I talk to who really likes true crime, as I know now you do, which I didn't know until recently, but what was like the first case that you would say that really like caught your attention that you were like, okay, this is crazy. This is interesting. Now I'm going to go on a binge and fall down the hole of true crime. Honestly, I think it was like, I've been into it for a while. It's just a matter of recently when I, when the movie uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out, about the the Manson murders and yeah. stuff like that. I think that was really interesting. And then I took that and then watched a whole documentary about him and I was very <laughs> intrigued. So I think that's when I was like, oh shoot, this is really cool. And kept going from there. So. For sure. That movie's crazy because a lot of people I know who don't know anything about true crime watched that movie and then thought that's what like actually happened. Right, and then they were yeah. very confused later on it, when like if they research anything about the Manson case, they were like, wait, yeah, <laughs> you mean to tell me that it didn't end like that? I'm like, no, I wish, but no. Yeah, that's that's a super, I I guess for me, like the Manson case, did, what did you, what did you like the most about researching it? Because I find the Manson case extremely hard to read and watch about. Right. I don't know why. Something about it, man, just gets me where I'm like, I just don't want to like, this is just too, I can't watch this. I can't read this. I don't know. I think the whole like, um, cult aspect of it just really pulls me in because of the, I don't know. It's just so interesting (laughs) when I don't even know where to start. That's the thing. Yeah. Do you think you could get drawn into a cult? I don't think so. Like I would if someone came up to me and was like, this is what you're going to do, I'd be like, no, that's not what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> nice try, but no. Yeah, no. Um, it's kind of interesting just to see people. And, like, usually it's people who have are, like, lost in life. They don't really know what they're doing. They're looking for something. And I'm not really looking for anything. So <laughs> You're like, I'm good. I'm, I'm set. I'm, I'm good. I feel like I could get drawn into a cult, like, fairly easily because um, – you know, it's just weird. Like, there's not a particular reason, I would say. Like, maybe it's because I tr- I hope that... I hope that I wouldn't be ever drawn into a cult. But I feel like it could happen. Because yeah. I want to, like, believe in things that I know aren't true. But then... I, I guess if someone was like, by the way, I'm, like, a magician. And I'm 
an alien from another planet i would be like of course you are like definitely <laughs> because i just want to believe that is true but then i also know like deep down it's not true but i feel like i could suppress that and that's just, how i would end up in a cult someone else for so long <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> like if someone was put all the effort like i read about this one cult where they like had stuff flying in the air and they were they would like make these magic shows that were super impressive and like it looked genuinely real and i just know that if i saw that i would be like oh my gosh magic is real i just want to believe it's true it's because i read harry potter when i was a kid (laughs) that i just desperately want to believe magic's real but I feel like that is how I would get drawn into a cult. But then I would probably not be in a cult anymore after that because I'm really lazy. And like if I had to do anything where it was like you have to do manual labor for the good of the cult, I'd be like, absolutely not. Bye. I'm out of there. Very true. (laughs) Yeah, I don't. Manual labor is where I draw the line. No more. You can put on a magic show, but that's about it. I'll watch. (laughs) I'll watch. But the second you ask me to do anything, it's over. It's done. Okay. I'm really excited about our case today. Also, I want to put out a quick uh, disclaimer. There was not an episode out last week. Um, I was sent a message after I posted for this uh, Blackout Tuesday that happened last week. I was sent a message that basically said that it would be considered respectful to wait and not upload this week so that it could be kind of like a week of... um, remembrance and like a week to just listen and i thought you know what better to be um listening better to be taking into account what people are telling me and so that's why there was not an episode last week it was a week to kind of like sit back and listen and see what's happening around the u.s and all over the world um i hope you guys took last week as well to kind of just look around and be like what is the world coming to and uh we also did horrible things donated three hundred dollars on behalf of the listeners from two weeks ago uh to in support of black lives matter so just letting you guys know that's kind of where i stand on it that's where i what happened last week and i kind of explained a little bit more in my instagram post so if you want to go check that out you can but i guess my final thoughts about it are murder does not stop being murder just because somebody in power commits it that's my final thought on that. But anyway, let's get back to the um, slightly less depressing murder. <laughs> if that's what you could say, I'm not sure. It's kind of, I guess this happened in, in 18, like the 1890s. So we're going back. I was like, I'm done. Things are so bad in the present. Take me back. It's time to go. Like, let's just see something that happened a long time ago. So we're going to be doing, I looked at the episode list, guys. It has been so long since I did a murder. Like, what? I guess I've just been doing, like, I survived and robberies and, like, I did the Love Canal disaster. And so I was looking back and I was just thinking, people are not going to think this is, like, a murder podcast. I just keep talking about things that are not murder related. So we're back here today with a good old double homicide. Um, We're going to talk about the case of Lizzie Borden, which I'm very excited about because I can't. I don't even think I've ever covered maybe like two female killers on this, but I have never really covered like a famous female killer. Um, There's just not many of them to choose from. I'm not sure why that is, but it's really, well, women are less likely to commit murder. I'm sure you know this. Yeah. Usually women who murder are more out of passion rather than like yes killing spree for no reason yeah so this is a murder of passion well okay technically technically this is a cold case it's not really a cold case you'll see what i mean when we get into it but it's super interesting and because this is a woman killer who didn't kill with poison and i don't think i've ever covered a female killer who didn't kill with poison correct me send me a dm if that's wrong i I'm pretty sure. Maybe Mary Bell is the only exception. She was the, the little 11. Girl, yeah. yeah, the 11-year-old. But I'm pretty sure I've never covered an adult woman who murdered without poison. So this is this is very interesting. And at the end, I'll, sh- I'll give you a little um, surprise of how you might actually know this case before you've actually known about this case. So you ready to get into it? Yes, I am. Okay. So like I said, today we are covering the case of Lizzie Andrew Borden. First of all... Um, I just have to point out that Lizzie Borden 
it just sounds evil. Like, I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know how. But it just sounds wrong. Like, it sounds like a haunted name. And I can't explain why. Maybe it's Borden. It's Maybe. the hard R and the hard D. In the yeah, it just <laughs> it doesn't sound right. It sounds like the name of murder. So anyway, Lizzie Andrew Borden. Andrew after her father. She was born in 1860 in Massachusetts, and her father was very rich because he manufactured furniture and caskets, and he became wealthy through that and textiles. Obviously, in the 1800s, textiles were a huge business, so he was into that in Massachusetts, Um, and he lived in Fall River, so it was like a small town outside of Boston, and he owned a lot of property. They were basically millionaires of the 1800s like they i think their total fortune was somewhere in the 400,000s but back then obviously that's a lot of money (laughs) so um they were millionaires but despite having a lot of money andrew borden was very frugal uh they didn't have indoor plumbing and they didn't have electricity which a lot of wealthy people at the time in the united states who were you know millionaires of the 1860s they would have indoor plumbing or electricity he didn't chose not to was there a reason like did he just save to save or yeah he pretty much just saved to save he just didn't want to spend the money he was pretty i don't want to say like cheap Mm -hmm. but he just chose to be more um to save a lot more of his money than to you know spend it on on things but you know what it's strange because to to them i would imagine electricity seemed like like a luxury that it wasn't quite necessary to spend on but for us it's like what do you mean there is no electricity what do you mean there is no indoor plumbing i can't even well have you ever stayed in a place without indoor plumbing or electricity i've been camping i've never gone camping so so i i've never thought about that how do you go to the bathroom when you're camping well usually at the campsite there's like bathrooms But what if you're just, like, in the wild, boy scouting it? You just go. You just go. When you gotta go, you gotta go. That's horrifying. Oh, my gosh. Dude, when I was in Girl Scouts, first of all, there's so many issues with Girl Scouts that I I can't even get into. Like, the fact that it's a pyramid scheme. Other than that, it really is. When you think about it. No, I agree. You get a Razor scooter if you sell 50,000 boxes of Thin Mints. It's ridiculous. Anyway, besides being a pyramid scheme um some things i learned in girl scouts how to sew how to make stew how to uh boost your self-esteem um completely ridiculous like i didn't really learn anything and when i tried to learn how to sew i burnt my hand on an iron and gave it up forever so basically girl scouts very strange but also my troop we never went camping instead we went glamping which basically meant that we rented a cabin in the outdoors and then we would like go outside but everyone in my troop was scared of the outdoors pretty much and i didn't like bugs so i was like automatically skeptical of anything having to do with camping so all these other troops, I would see they're like setting up tents and all this stuff. And we're just like, oh, we rented a cabin like a mile from here. See you guys tomorrow. I don't know. It was very strange. Did you have, did you, were you a part of Girl Scouts? I was for a few years and I was little, like really little. But I the only time I remember ever going camping was I'm pretty sure we just set up camp or like tents in a high school. <laughs> like a parking lot. Like on the field. <laughs> Honestly, this is what happens when you're from Southern California. There's no wilderness. Nope. <laughs> when I went to New Jersey uh, two years ago, my family's from there, and we were driving on the free the highway at night, and we were just driving, trying to get to my grandpa's house, and I was genuinely frightened of how many trees there were. <laughs> like, you look up to the side of the road, and there's just big paths of big like swaths of wilderness and i was just sitting there like what is going on why are there so many trees why is there so much open space it's so green here if you see like a lot of land that's shoved in between two restaurants you're like wow that's a lot of space right there it's weird they haven't built anything yet but there it's just you know there's acres and acres that are just not built on so whenever i go somewhere other than southern california i always find that really weird like very striking you know what I mean? I do, yeah. I can't imagine. Here it's like we don't care. Personal space, 
doesn't exist. We want to think we like personal space. We don't know what that means. We don't. Have you seen American bathrooms? True. That has not happened anywhere else in the world. Would you go, guys, for all my international listeners, um, you don't realize how good your bathroom situation is until you come to the U.S. Because we have these stalls, right, that have a door. But on either side of the door, there's like an inch gap. So anyone walking by could just look in and see you going to the bathroom. Not to mention, there's like a two foot gap on the bottom of the stall. So like if you needed to, you could crawl underneath (laughs) the stalls. You occasionally get the little kid looking under. Have that ever happened to you? (laughs) At Disneyland. (laughs) That has happened to me at Disneyland. And I was so scarred. You hear like a mom going, don't do that. (laughs) it's it's not right we shouldn't have to teach that to kids we should just build the stall doors like why can't it just be a tiny room and if you stand on the toilet you could look over and see someone else in their stall like it is we have no privacy here it's disturbing it is a little bit disturbing but anyway where were we i don't even know where we were he was frugal (laughs) andrew borden was very frugal um In Fall River, Massachusetts, there was this big neighborhood called The Hill, and that was where all the wealthiest people lived, but he didn't live there, even though he was pretty much the wealthiest person. So he lived in the second richest neighborhood, but not with the richest people. And Lizzie Borden and her sister Emma Borden, no relation. You know, it's weird, though. My name is Emma Elizabeth, and this is Emma and Lizzie. Kind of weird. Whatever. Maybe you're named after them. That would be horrifying. No, I'm named after... Emma Peel from the Avengers. Anyway, so they were raised very religiously. They went to Christian churches pretty much their whole life. And Lizzie herself was a part of several organizations that preached the Christian women, Christian women's mission. She's a big part of like the women's temperance movements in the late 1860s. And she was also a Sunday school teacher. So she taught kids every Sunday. And in 1863, Lizzie's mom passed away, and Mr. Borden married Abby Durfee three years later. So, Lizzie's stepmom, who she hated because she thought she was a gold digger, which honestly, she might have been, but who cares? So, they didn't have a civil relationship, Lizzie and her stepmother, or basically the whole family. Over time, things kept getting more and more tense. Uh, they're, one of the falling outs that Andrew Borden and Lizzie had was that he killed pigeons with a hatchet in his garage because he thought that it was attracting kids to the area to like come hunt the pigeons. 1863 things. And what happened happened to all the space that they had? I don't know. It kind of it's very strange to me that like back then, you know, kids would just like hunt things for fun. Um so I guess he thought that having pigeons on his property would make kids come hunt them they're like anything within 15 acres is too close yeah (laughs) personal space please but anyway um he killed these pigeons with a hatchet which made lizzie upset because she had like built a birdhouse for the pigeons i don't know i don't know how that even got documented because it (laughs) seems like an oddly specific detail to have but it's kind of a foreshadowing and um he also continued to buy a lot of things obviously lizzie had had her stepmom for a long time um she was born in 1860 her stepmom had been there since she was three years old but she often felt upset because her dad would buy a lot of stuff for her stepmom's family and like her sisters and her but not a lot for lizzie's mom's family so she felt kind of betrayed by that um he sold the house that the girls grew up in to his to abby's sisters and then rented it back from them so they were kind of just getting like steady income from him and it was just bad circumstances like it was really tense that none of them got along they all pretty much hated each other and we're skipping forward now it's 1892 so lizzie is 32 years old and at the end of july 1892 the family got really sick um, and actually, Abby was scared that they had been poisoned because he had Andrew Borden had some enemies. Obviously, he was a very powerful man in the 1890s. So he had some enemies. She was really scared that they had got poisoned. It was just food poisoning. But like you could see how they would all right. be on edge. They said it was like a bad stew or something that they <laughs> ate. 
<laughs> those this pigeons is, i feel like i haven't said the word stew more in my life than today like this is the day um so that was in late july and they were kind of all still sick into early august so we're gonna fast forward a little bit more and it is now august 4th 1892 my brother's birthday not 1892 <laughs> but august 4th <laughs> so john morse who is the brother of lizzie's mom slept in the guest room after he had arrived on august 3rd and he was just staying with the family because he wanted to talk to andrew borden about some inheritance issues some like stuff with money not great conversations money's always tense with the family (laughs) but basically john morse lizzie and both abby and andrew had all had breakfast together on the morning of august 4th and then John Morse left because he went to go buy something and Mr. Borden left also to begin his workday around like 9 a.m. So Abby went upstairs to clean the guest room, which John had been staying in between like 9 and 1030. And when she went upstairs, like as soon as she went upstairs, she was hit in the head with a hatchet, which is like, think of it more similar to an axe. It's basically like an axe. So she's hit in the head with a hatchet and she ca- she falls face down on the floor of the be- of her bedroom that she's in um, on the second floor of the house. The killer then proceeded to hit her 17 more times with a hatchet in the back of the head and she was killed due to the blunt force trauma to her head. Um, and Mr. Borden at that point, it's about like 930-ish and now Abby... Abby Borden is now lying dead on the floor of the guest room, second floor of the house. And the only people in the house at this point in time are this uh, maid named Sullivan and Lizzie Borden. So Mr. Borden gets back at like 1030 a.m., but his key wouldn't open the door for some reason. And so he knocked on the door and someone came to unlock it, but it was jammed. And Sullivan, the person who, the maid who was there, actually testified later that she thought she could hear Lizzie laughing from the top of the stairs at this situation that was going on. Because of the key? Yeah, because of the key. But Lizzie later denied that she had been upstairs at all. And the houseworker, um, Sullivan, she said she was basically a little confused but whatever she lets him in she lets him in and everything's fine she had just finished cleaning the windows she goes to the third floor to her room and she's resting everything's like pretty quiet in the house and around 11 10 lizzie says and i quote maggie come quick father's dead somebody came in and killed him and this maid goes downstairs and she finds mr borden is on the couch and he had been hit 10 to 11 times with a hatchet and he had likely been asleep when he was attacked because his eyeball was literally split in half in his face from being hit with a hatchet in the back of that or the front of the front in the front he was sitting on the couch sleeping and someone came up and hit him 11 times with a hatchet um and he was still bleeding when they found him so the cops estimated that he'd been killed at like 11 a.m and Lizzie Borden, although she was seemingly, like, good at committing and planning crimes, she was terrible when it came to police questioning. Like, her story was just continually changing as the police questioned her. Because, think about this. Like, two people in the span of, like, two and a half hours, right? Dead. Killed with a hatchet in a home. That does not seem quiet. Like, you would think that someone would have heard something. But... Lizzie Borden was pretty much the only one there. And Sullivan, the maid, had been cleaning windows. So she'd been pretty much out and about of the house all day. But at this point, they've only found the father, Andrew Borden. They have no idea where Abby is. And Lizzie's story keeps changing. So first she says that she heard someone entering the house. Then later she said she didn't hear anything at all. Uh, She was rude to some police officers. But then some other police officers said that she was very calm and polite. And then lastly, she said that abby her stepmom had gone to see a friend but that someone should go upstairs and check for her and when sullivan and a neighbor adelaide churchill went upstairs to go check and see if abby had really left they were the two that discovered she had also been murdered and was lying face down in the floor of the guest room like as soon as they were halfway up the stairs they could see what had happened and 
at this point, like, what are, what are your theories, Michaela? Give me some, give me some theories. What do you think happened? Okay, well, the fact that she was over here, like, I think someone broke in and killed everyone. Like, <laughs> you know, I think uh, just maybe someone broke in and just killed everyone. I feel like she already knows what happened, so. So you think Lizzie did it? Sounds like that. I mean, if she's the only other person in the house. Yeah. So, obviously, we're not in the 1890s, and we're not even in this direct area, but still, we would say, Lizzie seems a little sus here. Ready? A little ready? suspicious. Not ready for it. If if Sullivan's outside cleaning the windows, wouldn't she see if someone broke into the house? <laughs> wouldn't she hear? Yeah, wouldn't she be there? There's a lot of holes in this story, and despite that, they didn't check her for bloodstains or forensic evidence because I don't mean to be graphic here, guys, but if you smack someone in the head with a hatchet multiple times, there's going to be some blood splatter, especially if you're hitting them in the head where there is a lot of blood. Yet they didn't check any of her stuff for bloodstains or forensic evidence because by this point they kind of knew what DNA was. Still, they don't check anything. And she said after the murders that she didn't feel well so they didn't search her room. Hmm. She just went back to her room. She went back to her life. They didn't check her at all. And when the police searched the basement of her house, they found, you guessed it, the murder weapon, along with two other hatchets and two other axes. And it seemed that whoever had killed Abby and Andrew had put dust on the murder weapon purposely to make it seem like it had been there for a while. But the murder weapon never left the house. It was there the entire time, not taken in, not taken out. And at first, after these murders, obviously gruesome double homicide. And this was really shocking to the people at the time because this town wasn't like crime didn't really happen there. And it wasn't a very obviously it wasn't a very big town, but this was one of the most affluent families in the town. And there had just been a double homicide. <laughs> so obviously big stir coming up in Massachusetts. And so one of the main theories was that because everyone had had food poisoning the week before, the police tested the bodies for poison. That was their first thought was that, okay, maybe they were poisoned. And then because of that, they were able to be taken out easier. However, there was no evidence of poisoning at all. So we're going back. It's August 4th. They've just been murdered. Uh, Lizzie and Emma's friend decided to spend the night of August 4th with them, and so did John Morse, uh, again, the mother's brother. They decided to spend the night with police protection because at this point, they kind of believed that someone had broken into the house and had murdered Abby and Andrew for financial reasons. So they stay the night with police protection. Horrifying. Can you imagine spending the night in a house where two people were just murdered? knowing the murder weapon never left the house like even with police protection uh uh no and back then clearly they didn't have very good like they didn't rope off crime scenes and prevent anyone from going in there like police were going in there reporters were going in there the family was going in and out of there friends it was not they did not do a good job of protecting protecting any forensic evidence whatsoever again it's the 1890s so i can't blame them too much because they didn't really have that technology but still it was like that john mulaney bit where he says <laughs> where he, he's like um he's got this line where he goes so the someone would tell the detective we found a pool of the killer's blood and the detective would be like uh mop it up I know. now back to my hunch <laughs> like that was basically police work now so they're staying there with police protection and late at night one officer said that he saw lizzie enter the cellar like the basement with a lamp and a bucket and he couldn't see what she was doing but he said it looked like she was cleaning something he didn't go in to stop her no one went in to check what was happening uh so that happens and then everyone wakes up august 5th john morse tries to leave but he's mobbed by reporters and people from the town and he's brought back into the house basically just telling you that to show that this is like a huge deal people are coming from all over massachusetts to try to figure out what happened here and to report on it and also because it meant that the crime scene was really not well preserved whatsoever things were changing all the time people were mobbing the house it was pretty much chaotic and august 6th the police decided okay now we need to do a thorough search so they did a search and they took away the murder weapon 
And on the 6th, the mayor also came to the Borden's house and um, they told Lizzie basically that she was a suspect because she, of course, had been the only person in the house right. and the murder weapon hadn't left. So she was obviously a suspect. And on the morning of the 7th, I told you that her friend decided to stay there. Mm-hmm. That friend's name was Alice Russell. And in the morning, she came into the kitchen and she saw Lizzie in the kitchen tearing up a dress. And she, Lizzie told her that she was going to burn the dress because she had accidentally gotten it covered in paint. And it was most likely, obviously we'll never know because she did burn the dress. It was most likely the dress that she was wearing during the murders. And so she had an inquest hearing on August 8th. Things moved really fast back then. Like this happened on the 4th and by the 8th, she already has a hearing. Things do not move that fast anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, She had an inquest hearing on August 8th that she was very high on morphine for because she had been given morphine since she was upset about what happened. Obviously, murdering people takes a toll on you. <laughs> um, not to not to blame, not to say that she did it, but she definitely did it. And no, I'm kidding. Sorry, I'll stop inserting my personal opinion. It's is it really my personal opinion, or is it just the blatant facts that no one wanted to put together? We'll find out later. Basically, she had an inquest hearing, and she's high on morphine for it, so she wouldn't answer questions, even the ones that would have helped her. And she was constantly contradicting herself. One thing that she said over and over again, even on the day of the murder, was that when her dad got home, she was the person who helped, who was there to greet him. Sullivan had gone upstairs. She greeted him, and she helped him remove his boots and help him put on his slippers, and then he went to go take a nap, and she left and went out to the barn. But in the crime scene photos, like the, I guess the picture, I've seen like two pictures from it. Uh, He was still wearing his boots when he was murdered. So there were little details of things that just didn't add up, (laughs) didn't add up at all. So August 11th, Lizzie Borden is arrested and a grand jury indicts her on December 2nd. So she's kind of just waiting in jail for like five months. And her trial actually didn't take place until June 5th of 1893. So, almost a year since the original crime took place, her trial happens. And five days before her trial begins, there's actually an axe murder in the same town with really, really big similarities in the murders. Um, and they didn't actually convict anyone in that, cr- in that crime until 1894. And he wasn't around during the Borden murders, the guy who committed that separate axe murder. But it left a lot of doubt in people because they were like thinking, okay, maybe this isn't the right person because we just had an axe murder that was really similar and she couldn't have done it because she's been in jail. Right. So that added on to like the sensationalism of this trial. It was very, very dramatic. And in June 1893, trial begins, June 5th. This... This is like one, the reason this case is so interesting to me, aside from obviously like double homicide axe murders, is it's basically the first trial in American history that's fueled by media sensationalism. Like we've seen it a lot over the years now, Scott Peterson, um, I'm OJ Simpson, you know, big trials that have been fueled by media coverage. But this was basically the first trial in American history where the media was really a involved in a crime in a in crime news um before that it hadn't really been a big deal but this was a sunday school teacher a big supporter of the women's temperance movement member of an affluent family who was being accused of axe murdering her parents so obviously big case people are interested and so the people that they pulled for the jury were mainly like people from small farming towns nearby who hadn't really heard much of the news or people who were tradesmen, things like that. All men, of course, it's 1893. And so the main argument of the prosecution was, of course, the hatchet that was found in the basement. Uh, the killer had actually removed the handle of the hatchet because it would have had like blood and fingerprints on it. But the actual hatchet saying, OK, this never left there was no bloody clothing but alice russell ended up testifying against lizzie borden uh saying what she had seen and one of the 
Obviously, there's a lot of forensic and seemingly good evidence for the prosecution, but one of the main points for the defense was whether or not Lizzie had actually been in the house at the time of the murder. Of So, obviously, they put together Andrew and Abby murdered by the same person. Mm-hmm. So, they thought if we say, if we prove that Lizzie wasn't in the house during Andrew's killing, then she's cleared for both. So, Sullivan didn't... didn't- she claimed to take the shoes off of her dad and then yes and then leave just leave okay yeah so one like what they had said was sullivan the maid she'd seen lizzie and her father's downstairs at like 10 58 a.m they estimated the murder took place at like 11 a.m but lizzie said that after she greeted her father she had left and she went to the barn on their property for 20 minutes and two people nearby Hyben Lubinsky one, is one guy, uh, and Charles Gardner said that they had seen her leaving the barn at 1103. Hmm. So even though she hadn't um, been there for as long as she said, she said she was there for like 20 minutes, their timeline was basically that they had one testimony saying that she'd left the house at 1058. Then they had two other testimonies saying that they'd seen her coming out of the barn at 1103. So, even though the timelines don't match up, basically, it was saying, okay, no one can place her after 1058, and two people can place her not at the crime scene at, mm-hmm. like, after the murder is supposed to ta- right. have taken place. So, like, with that timeline, she if she comes back to the house at 1103, like, she's walking out of the barn at 1103, at 1110, Lizzie Borden was the time she had called up to Sullivan and been like, hey, my dad's dead. Get a doctor. And she told her to get a doctor. Didn't tell her to come into the room. So uh, the maid can't tell anyone what had actually happened because she wasn't in the room at that time. She went to go get a doctor. But basically their point was, okay, as soon as she got back to the house, she saw her dad was dead and she called up for help because she was not the one who committed the murder. How far away was the barn? I don't think it was very far. I think it was, based on what I've seen from the pictures, it looks like it would maybe be like a two to five minute walk. Okay. So not Not far. far. And so their whole point was she wasn't even around. And we have two people that can confirm that she wasn't even around. So what are you trying to say? And another thing that made this trial even crazier was that in the autopsy, we would never do this today. People in the 1890s were wild. Um, Abby and Andrew's heads were both removed during the autopsies. We don't remove people's heads during autopsies anymore, but back then they did. So they removed their heads and their skulls were used as evidence in the trial. Like their actual skulls were brought brought to the courthouse (laughs) and Lizzie fainted when she saw them in the courtroom, which like some people were like, ah, she fainted because she's scared because she did it. I'm like, no. Sorry, even if she did do it, I feel like anyone would faint at the sight of two people they know, but just their skulls. That is horrifying, horrifying. Like, they had to do some terrible things to get those skulls, basically, because it had not been that long of a time since they had been killed. So, yeah, kind of oof. She fainted. I'm not that concerned about that aspect, but people use that as like, oh, she's guilty. Um, then basically at the end of her trial, the associate justice gave this long speech in support of her defense, and then he sent the jury to deliberate on June 20th. The whole trial lasted like 15 days. Uh, after about an hour and a half of deliberating, Borden was acquitted of both murders. Not charged. She goes off. She can, she can live her life now. She didn't commit the murders, according to these people. And this trial is considered very important as, like, a landmark in the history of American legal proceedings because she was most likely acquitted because of her status, race, and beliefs. Like, she was a Sunday school teacher. She was part of the women's temperance movement. She was this white, affluent woman. She couldn't have possibly murdered someone. That was basically the belief. And like I said... um, a lot of the people who had come onto the jury were farmers from small towns. 
So these were people, very rural backgrounds, very in support of these movements that she was part of. So it made it a lot. People say that they the jury acquitted her within the first 15 minutes and then wow. waited so that they wouldn't seem like they had rushed the decision. But basically, she was set to get acquitted right from the start because it just wasn't believed that a woman could murder two people with an axe back then. And also, she was backed by her sister. So that was seen as like a good thing that her sister wouldn't back her if she believed she'd done it. And another thing that's kind of bad, but also makes sense as to why she was acquitted is that when she was first interviewed, she was interviewed by Irish police. And back then, uh, there had been an influx of Irish immigrants into uh, Fall River, Massachusetts. But people were very racist against Irish people. They didn't like them and they considered them to be like second class citizens. So the fact that she had been interviewed by Irish people, people were saying, oh, well, the police officers couldn't have done a good job. They couldn't have interviewed her well. All this stuff about her being rude or about her giving bad stories is probably their fault. Or she was just so frustrated. She was just so this, that. So basically, they blamed it on the police. And there was only one Irish person on the jury. So there wasn't any representation of the actual population. And... Basically, she just in the trial, she just presented herself as helpless. Like, that's what Mm -hmm. people wanted to see as she knew that and her defense knew that if they presented her as this little girl who couldn't have possibly done it, she's in her 30s, she's pretty young. If they present her as this helpless Sunday school teacher, then they knew that she would get acquitted, even if she had probably done it. And so because of that, you know, she gets off. She gets off on the charge. And the press and the women's groups were really happy about her acquittal. And then four years later, she was arrested in Providence for shoplifting. <laughs> but that's a that's a small detail. But basically, everyone is just really happy about her acquittal because they, they're like, good. This is what she deserved. She, she got off on the murders. And personally, I'm almost 100% certain that she did it <laughs> because... A, she had a bad relationship with the family members who were murdered. B, she was the only person in the house who could have done it. And C, she burned that dress. Like, I'm sorry, but that seems pretty suspicious to me. So I'm, I feel almost certain that she was the one who did it. But it's because of her status and right. things other than the crime that she got off. And a lot of people relate this to the O.J. Simpson case. A lot of people, at least who think he did it, relate it to saying uh, it was because he was a celebrity that that's why he got acquitted, you know, and like things that they did um, weren't because of the crime is because he was a celebrity, because he was this person in culture, right. because he was affluent. And so people will say this is like the first of those type of crimes where it's like somebody who gets off, maybe not because they did the crime, but maybe because of who they are. True. I'm surprised that they didn't um, think that the maid was a suspect because of that, her status too, being lower class and everything, especially if she was such higher class, that they didn't like think she did all it. on her. Yeah. I mean, I think that she had like a really solid alibi because yeah. she had been like in the room and obviously she wasn't even the one who found the body. And she, I think she had a really solid testimony so did um john morris they interviewed and he was a suspect for a while he had a really solid alibi like he was out people saw him so pretty much the only suspect was lizzie borden and i read this article that i'm i want to read this um quote because i think it's really interesting but uh this quote basically says that these murders quote reflect a key moment in our modern public consciousness about the reality of violence in private families even the ones that seem outwardly affluent or normal end quote so the reason this case got sensationalized so much was just it was one of the first cases where it was like look at this horrible thing that happened to this family who you wouldn't think anything horrible would be happening for them because they're affluent because they're rich because they have like social status because they have all these different things but it doesn't stop the fact that they were still murdered probably by their own kid so it was a really like a wake-up time in american culture where people were like hmm maybe rich being rich isn't the only important thing like maybe, maybe there are people are upset when they're rich you yeah know. yeah so it was a very interesting case for american culture and 
it's kind of i would also relate it to jack the ripper in that the jack the ripper case was so famous and obviously is still so famous because it highlighted a part of culture that people really hadn't want to talk about until the murders happened like it highlighted that in london there was this terrible prostitution and all this like shady stuff going on that no one wanted to talk about and that's basically what this case was for american culture where it was like no one wanted to talk about you know abuse and violence in private families in affluent families until something happened that they couldn't ignore so i think it's that's why this case is so interesting it's like it connects to so many other cases just in its nature so i i think it's super interesting um but back to lizzie borden Despite her acquittal, she's basically still the main suspect in the murders because there's no one else. And there were a lot of theories at this point to why she had done it, including people believe she'd been physically or sexually abused by her father. Uh, The craziest one I saw was that she had a lesbian affair with Sullivan. I don't think that was true. There's really no evidence to back it. But um, then the other one was that she had killed them in a, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, a fuge state. So like a psychotic break, basically. And that she had murdered them then. Uh, the only other suspect, John Morse, had a great alibi. And Sullivan was a suspect for a little time. But it really ended up not being credible at all. Because she had a great alibi. And after the trial, the Borden sisters decided to move to a big house in the richest area of Fall River. And their new house had this gigantic staff. Because they had gotten a lot of money. Since Abby yeah. had died first, her estate had been inherited by Andrew. Then when Andrew was killed, the majority of both of their estates went to the two Borden sisters because they were his kids, as opposed to going to the rest of Abby's family because she had died last. Right. Like, it was very well planned. You know what I mean? Like, if she had, if Andrew had died first, his estate would have gone to Abby, and then Abby would have dispersed it more to her family because she would have had both their estates. But since she died first, most of it went to the Borden sisters, and- because of that, they moved to the hill. They had a big, gigantic house. And um, although she'd been acquitted, although she had this giant house, although she had staff, although she had a sister, Lizzie was basically isolated, not wanted in society. People ignored her. People were scared of her. She was not welcomed back, despite all these people who had backed her in the trial. Really, just a lonely life after that. In 1905, her sister moved out of the house and never spoke to her again. Uh, And then Lizzie eventually died in 1927 of pneumonia, and she was buried in the same plot with her, the rest of her family. But basically, after after that trial ended, she had gotten arrested one more time for shoplifting, and then after that, she was pretty much just alone in that house for the rest of her life. Because even though she didn't do it, people on paper, people knew she did it, and so you know, she people feared her. Or kids would play pranks on her and stuff. Um, some interesting facts now. Now that we've kind of gotten to the end of the case. Uh, the Borden house. Like the one where the murders happened. It's a museum now. And you can stay <laughs> there. It's a bed and breakfast. So like you can spend the night there. And have breakfast there. And then go to a museum where you can learn all about the murders. Uh, kind of interesting. I would definitely do that. Many books and movies have also been made about this case. Like tons and tons. Uh, but... The most interesting cultural thing that came from it, in my opinion, is there's a nursery rhyme that, mm. like, you know, um, those little chants that kids will do, like yeah. Ring Around the Rosie, yeah. you know what I mean? Uh, so there's a nursery rhyme that came from this case. It's It goes like this. Kind of creepy, but whatever. Lizzie Borden took an axe and gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. And that's like a really popular children's nursery rhyme chant thing that kids will say. Especially back then, like early 1900s, kids would say that all the time. Like it was like Ring Around the Rosie. And little did they know, probably, (laughs) it's based off an actual murder. So that's a really interesting thing to me is that her, this case was so famous that it spawned a child's chant nursery rhyme thing. Kind of like... I guess it really is like Ring Around the Rosie because that came from the plague. So both terrible, terrible events that spawned um, children's nursery rhymes. And I think that's like the most interesting cultural thing that came out of it. The books and movies are cool too, but that's like insane. 
So there you go. That is the double homicide of Andrew and Abby Borden, most likely committed by Lizzie Borden, who burned up her dress and didn't have an alibi. But anyway, who actually did it? Yeah, who got acquitted and then became rich. Like, are you kidding me? She had a motive. She, I can't deal with it. I almost um, wanted to think that her sister was in on it because then they inherited all the stuff. But oh, then she never. She just cut off ties with her. Yeah, I wonder if she lived with her long enough and then realized that she did it, and yeah. that's why her sister moved out. That Maybe. would make sense. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you live with someone long enough. You know. The truth comes out, you know? But I don't know. It's just crazy to me. Her sister is also a lot older than her, like nine years older than her. She wasn't married or anything? No. She was 41 still living with the family, hmm. which was not normal back then. Yeah. They were both pretty old to be living, still living with their yeah. family. Because I feel like maybe I'm totally wrong, but in the 1890s, it was very much like get, get moved out, have yeah. kids really young. Like, people didn't people have kids in their teens mm-hmm. purposefully? Not saying you can't have kids in your teens if you are financially stable and want to. I guess go ahead. <laughs> Not my business, but back then it was like, if you didn't have kids by the time you were 20, you were right. behind. <laughs> That's horrifying to think about. I'm 19. <laughs> I am not having kids in the foreseeable future. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine everyone we know having kids right now? Uh, no. Yeah. It would, would be a nightmare. Have. Those poor kids. <laughs> That's why everyone was so messed up I back know. then. They're all being raised by like, children. <laughs> so true. <laughs> Everyone's being raised by someone who's still being raised. I know. Concerning. But yeah, that's the case of Lizzie Borden, the double homicide, the axe murders, Lizzie Borden, who gave her mother 40 wax and then gave her father 41. That's it's a crazy case. What do you think about it? I liked it. No, it was very interesting. I feel like um, she obviously did it. I feel like there's no reason why she wouldn't. But no, it's just crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting murder. I think I find the ones where the trial is important all the more interesting because obviously the murders brutal blunt force trauma is a bad way to go and also like the details about the eyeball and then to have your head cut off and right after you're dead it's just not a graceful way to die it's really a bad way to die it's yeah it's just super sad but then you have like the brutality of the murders but then to have them be committed by a sunday school teacher makes it all the more creepy all the more weird and then to have the trial be so dramatic yeah it's just an interesting case and you don't think something like that would happen in the 1890s at least i almost wonder if the media wasn't so involved if she would actually have been committed for her crimes maybe like if it hadn't become such a movement right if it would have yeah i think that a lot of times as we've seen in our um in our current day society, a lot of times crimes can be excused just because of who you are, which Definitely. should not be how it is. Totally wrong because that's not justice. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's interesting to see how long that's been happening. We've been excusing people for their crimes since the 1890s when they shouldn't be. Probably and earlier than that. Probably, too. yeah, probably earlier than that. I mean, I don't want to go back too far into early American history, but yeah, there's some, we've only been around for a couple hundred years and we have messed up a lot in that couple hundred years. We've done great things too, but you know, that's, that's how it is. But this was pretty much the first famous media case, which I think is super interesting because I don't know, I'm a broadcast journalism major. So certain cases like the OJ Simpson case, I have the number of lectures and the number of clips I've watched about the O.J. Simpson case purely because it was the biggest media event Mm -hmm. in the 21st century. Was it or was it in the 90s? No, I'm pretty sure it was the 21st. Yeah, the 21st century. Um, It was, I mean, like the biggest thing ever. More people watching the car chase with O.J. Simpson than watching the Super Bowl. Like, basically, it's the same amount of numbers. So we we review that, and we review that media coverage and study that period of time extensively in broadcast journalism. So we've also studied other cases, like Robert Durst. We've studied um, Scott Peterson, other cases where the media has been super, super prevalent. Right. But 
never studied one that went back this early. So it's kind of interesting, at least for me, to see where it all began, even before broadcasting, even before all that stuff, that people have always been interested in true crime. You know? Like, people have always... I mean, sure, some people had a stake in it, as in a stake, like, they didn't want their movement to look bad, they didn't want their church to look bad, but I think most people were following it because, like, true crime has always been popular, and honestly, if you're a housewife in the 1890s, like, what do you got to do except (laughs) read about a Dax murder, you know? So, kind of interesting, super cool. I really enjoyed researching this case. That's good. Okay, now it's time to move on to my favorite segment of the show happy things (laughs) so we've just talked a lot about blunt force trauma and blood spatter and you know all horrible things so now it's time to talk about some happy things just name one good thing that's happened in your week one good thing that's going to happen in your week and why it's good why you like it so much just bring some joy into the environment here sounds good all right you want to go first you want me to go first i can go yes all right um, actually, in two weeks, I should be heading out to Virginia to go visit <gasps> my family who moved there last year. So they used to be so close. Now they're like 3,000 miles away. But that's okay. But I got to go see them. So That's awesome. That's such a good one. Are you going to D.C. at all? I don't know. I know my parents are going to like Virginia Beach and stuff. I don't know if I'm going to go or if we're going to um, D.C. and stuff. I'm only going to be there for 10 days. So That feels like a lot. It, yeah, it kind of does. Are you nervous about air travel? No, not really. Kind of enjoy it. So, I w- I feel like I'd be nervous in this time. Like everyone True. is so everything's tense. You know yeah. what I mean? But I'm sure you guys were, are gonna have to wear masks and oh, stuff yeah, on the plane. Sure. So that's good. At least being being safe. That'll be fun though. Yeah, Get to see I your think, family. Yeah, I think only the planes are up to like sixty percent. Comp- oh, okay. Yeah. So so you'll have a lot of space too. That's good. True. I'm trying to think now. You you came <laughs> up with yours so quick. Usually it takes people a while. So then I have time to collect myself. Okay. I can come up with one. Boom. I've got it. Um, my happy... <laughs> I have no idea where this is going. Okay. My happy thing... Oh, I do have one. Okay. My happy thing is that I um, am going surfing on Saturday. I'm very excited to go surfing. I like to go surfing. And also just been at the beach a lot more now that it's like a safe place to be. So that's been great. And also, I've been really... I'm happy that we got to like make a donation. That was great. And also, I'm st- I've started this book. I talk about books all the time on here, but guys, this is like joy of my life now that quarantine has started. Um, I started this book called Ninth House by one of my favorite authors, Lee Bardugo. And it's this book about like um, secret societies at Yale that practice dark magic. <laughs> and that's just like everything I love in a fantasy book wrapped together so i'm super stoked to be reading it harry potter's real harry potter's real what this is like bad magic though this is like searching for like people getting rich off of searching for the future in inside victims bodies and stuff it's like dark but really interesting and that's kind of the stuff i like to read so that is good and also i'm happy that i lent michaela the stranger beside me so i'm happy that you are enjoying that and um that you're gonna read monster florence the best guys i'm not kidding everyone has read there's mainstream true crime books you know the books everyone's read you know you know what i'm talking about if you like to read true crime the monster of florence is such it's just a cut above every other true crime book i've ever read if i could recommend you one thing to read one thing to watch i would recommend a hundred times over reading the monster of florence it is so so good you would not regret it and it's not just like scary and like true crimey it's also like an action story because what happened was just so crazy seriously read that book it is so good i've read it like three times i love it so so much douglas preston is a genius and if you don't want to read a whole book there's a shortened article of it on the new yorker so you could read that just saying Anyway, that's my rant about the Monster <laughs> of Florence, the best book ever. Okay. Anyway, I think it's time to end the episode there, but thank you guys so much for listening. I hope everyone is doing well, staying safe, staying healthy, and I love you guys very much. It's been a tough time in the world, but the podcast is always something I look forward to doing, and I hope it's something you guys look forward to listening to. But I love you guys very, very much. If you want to catch the podcast, 
at a time when it's not a Tuesday, you can go ahead and go to at Horrible Things Podcast on most social medias, except Twitter. It's at Horrible Things P, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fine. You guys already knew this. Anyway, um, if you want to support the podcast, you can find us online at patreon.com slash horrible things, or you can leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. I would sincerely appreciate it. But other than that, I just want you guys to remember that if you have a dress that's stained from paint splatter, you might want to be a little bit more subtle about it. Right. Also, if you were told to go do chores, you might be happy about it because it might give you an alibi next time. So. And most importantly, guys, don't, don't do horrible, horrible things. things.